Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Loka Podcast. On this episode, I talk to the co-founder and CTO of Zenipits, Lax Srini. Lax and Zenipits have had an amazing journey from him being just one of the two co-founders of Zenipits to getting into Y Combinator to then becoming one of the fastest growing SaaS companies of all time. I learned a ton about growing engineering teams through hyper growth phases, and I'm sure you will as well. Enjoy. I'm here at Zenefit's headquarters in San Francisco, looking out the window at another idyllic Northern California day. With me across the table here is my guest. Please go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Lakshini, um, co-founder and CTO at Zenefit's. Uh, it's fun to be here. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. So uh, the first thing I always like to do is, um, especially when we're lucky enough to have a co-founder, is kind of hear in their voice, if they were explaining to someone who didn't know, um, what, what does Zenefits do? Yeah, so we, we when we started Zenefits, we kind of imagined it as, wouldn't it be cool if you hire somebody and completely paperlessly onboard them onto your company, set them up in payroll, set them up in health insurance, set them up with time tracking, vacation tracking, commuter benefits, 401k, and so on and so forth. And when changes happen, it automatically takes care of itself. When people leave, it or they automatically go away from all your systems. That's kind of what we imagined because um, running it, entrepreneurs and, and people who, who start businesses start, do so because they have a dream. Once that dream becomes larger than themselves, they have to hire people. And once they have to do that, they just end up doing a lot of administrative stuff, um, which is probably not that much time, It's but it's definitely time that they resent. Um, so our, our aim is to like make that all go away. I think you have a really interesting journey. We all do of how you came to the, uh, starting line of Zenefit. So before we dig into what happens post, uh, you starting the company, I think it'd be useful context, uh, for our listeners of how you went, uh, from, so from, let's say college to, to Zenefit. Yeah, well, I was going to start it a long time ago when I was born. So I, I went to college, uh, did my master's in software engineering. It was a five years integrated course. Um, straight out of college, I went to work for a hedge fund called DE Shaw. Uh-huh. Um, I started working out of them in India. I was there from 2004 to 2011. Yeah. Um, so I got a nice ringside view of the build up, the blowout and the aftermath uh-huh. um, of, of the 2008 crisis. Um, I was there for a while because it was some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Learned a lot of life lessons, like never play poker with a Russian bond trader. <laughs> um, but but it, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, everything we built there, um, the issue spun out into 2013 as a separate company. Um, so it's, it's always fun to see that happen. Uh, but I've always wanted to do my own thing. And it kind of got tired making more money with money. This is what a hedge fund does. Um, so one of my friends who I'd worked with at D. Shaw had gone to work for a startup called Sigfig. So Sigfig, you can think of as a mint for brokerages. Mm-hmm. So they connect all your different accounts. They pull them all together. Um, and they also do robo-advising. Um, so I went to work there because, A, it was in San Francisco, which is where you want to be if you ever want to think of starting a company. Yeah. I think it's still true today as true it was 10 years ago mm-hmm. or eight years ago. 
Two, it was sort of in the financial space. I had this hang up that I built all this knowledge of how these things work and I didn't want to lose all that. So, so I was looking for something in the space. And three, um, it was a small company and I could learn about how things run. Um, get paid to like figure out how these things work is better than going and doing an MBA, uh, I think. Uh, my 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 opinions are my own. I would I would agree though. <laughs> yeah, and and six figures where I met Parker, who was my co-founder at Zenefits. So when Parker left Sigfig and was thinking about starting a new company, he came and talked to me, and then it I could see a straight line into why this was useful, um, and also it was kind of nice to make real things for real people and helping. Some of the largest number of people who run businesses, there are four and a half million small businesses in the US mm-hmm. under the size of 20 employees. So if you could kind of help them grow their businesses and run their businesses and make it easier, even if you made it a little easier to hire somebody, even if it made it a little easier to start a business, run a business, um, then we would have done our jobs right. That, that makes a lot of sense. So t- tell us a little bit about that process of, uh, so being at SigFig, um, how, how do you go from SigFig to, say, uh, being at Y Combinator? Yeah, so so Parker, I mean, like Y Combinator was a, was a very obvious thing for us. Um, if you're doing anything that sells software to companies, it's a no-brainer. There are 100 companies in your own batch. Right. Um, but also, like, I think... Early days of Y Combinator was probably some of the most productive 90 days of my life. Um, we, we did not have anything built out when we, when we got into Y Combinator. Parker had learned Python, written a, written a small demo of like a payroll sync. How do you like get data from payroll and do, and show it in this like website? Yeah. Um, so that's all we had. So we, we pretty much started from scratch. Um, we launched in six weeks. Uh, because we had to. Uh, so you had a demo before you even started the first week at Y Combinator. Yeah, it was a, it was it was a demo of like how do you go to payroll, get all the data, and then do some sort of like the idea is like you use that to do insurance coding. Okay. So it's as frictionless as possible. Yeah. And for most small companies, their system of record is payroll because they don't have any other systems, mm-hmm. and even that is not up to date, woefully and sadly. Yeah. So, um, do you remember any of the other, um, I mean, I know it's a while back, but in that, uh, in your, in your class at Y Combinator, any of the other names that folks might know now have, um, yeah, um, I think, um, VFunder was in our batch. Okay. Um, Airware that does software for drones, um, was, was our batch company. Yeah. Um, BearZoom, I don't know if, if you'd heard of it, it's a contracting um, marketplace. Um, Got it. They're pretty cool. And th- there's a bunch of other companies like were really interesting. Gold Belly, which delivers food from all over the US. Oh, interesting. Um, so you can get a bagel from New York. Oh, wow. So um, for those that don't have much experience uh, going through the Y Combinator process, if you were to just sort of try to paint a visual picture of what that's like, is it is it sort of like a, an MBA course where you're all, all these companies are going together into comp- um, lecture halls and, and hearing presentations or how do, how do you spend your, is it 12 weeks or? So it's roughly three months, okay. 90 days or so. Um, you start and then there's demo day at the end of it. Right. Um, you have group office hours every week. Um, so you and a bunch of companies like get assigned partners and you kind of talk about your problems or where you are. Okay. 
Um, and then uh, you have dinners on every Tuesday. Okay. Uh, but it, that's what it used to be. Now the batches are much larger, so I think they separated. And uh, in our dinners, like we have uh, people from um, Brian Chesky to Peter Thiel to Ron Conway come and talk about stuff. And uh, it's, it's incredibly, uh, it, that was incredibly great. Because I think part of it is um, when you hear these stories in a much more unfiltered way, you kind of get to realize, man, it's okay being a shit show. It's, it's almost like kind of being a prerequisite to being successful. Uh, <laughs> so it just kind of like helps reset like some of the notions of like what you think successful companies like should look like. Um, right. Even if like you have no idea what you're doing. Um, so I think that was incredibly useful. Um, and our partners were great. I mean, we had Gary Dan, Jeff Ralston, and um, they were incredibly helpful. Um, and yeah. And, and so during the, you know, sort of the business hours of those, you know, 90 days, you're, you're working with your co-founder on writing code or talking to customers? Or yeah. The- um, talk to customers. Yeah. Write code. Uh, eat, sleep, exercise. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that's that's pretty much it. Like you talk to customers, you continuously iterate and, and, and improve your product. Got it. Okay, so you you get to demo day, you you demo, and then um, h- how does the talk a little bit about the the growth of uh, you know the team at large and then the engineering team from that point? Yeah. So during for most of YC, it was just me and Parker. Okay. Uh, but before demo day, we'd uh, hired our First marketing hire, okay. uh, Matt, who we knew from SIGFIG, uh, he came on board as our VP of marketing. Yeah. Glenn, who was our um, engineer number two, he's now a, a principal engineer. Uh-huh. Uh, he also, me and Glenn had worked together at SIGFIG before. So those two came on board right before Demo Day. We had sold about like 20 to 24 companies by Demo Day. Okay. Um, so so that, was, that was nice. And then... Um, by the way, we, we built that uh, insurance enrollment piece. So another thing why why I think that the time that we started Zenefits was incredibly interesting was uh, we, we, we started Zenefits late 2012, early 2013 um, and um, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act was going live Jan 1st, 2014. So what, what the Affordable Care did was it normalized a lot of things and introduced a lot of rules about how insurance will be bought and sold by small companies and brokers and a whole bunch of things. So it suddenly changed the game where we could build a CAC style health insurance coding engine, right? Um, and brokers are a lot of money. And at SIGFIG, I'd never seen my broker. And I, I at, at, at least the smaller companies, I don't think they had much value. Um, I'd never seen my broker. I didn't <laughs> even know open enrollment existed. One month every year, my cost would go up. Right. I didn't even know it did. Um, so, so we were, oh, what if we could be a broker? We can get a ton of money on the health insurance commissions, which is between 400 to $700, depending on like which state mm-hmm. carrier uh, per employee. Um, so that's a lot of money. So if you could make that, we could offer the entire system of record for free. Right. Um, and, and that was, that was, I think, the, the business model genius that, that Parker came up with. And so you guys, you know, before you and Parker decided to incorporate, had that Obamacare announcement been made? Yeah, it was, it was, it, 
this the bill was the signed in 20 gold tidbit that you just mentioned there, but I hope folks heard it. So, uh, you know, you arrive at the beginning of Y Combinator with Parker having a demo that you mentioned. And then did you have any customers at that point before you started Y Combinator? No. And then you f when you got to demo day, you said you had signed uh, how many? 20, 24. Okay, so in 90 days, you managed to sign up. Yeah, 90 days, we built, we launched, we signed up a bunch of customers. Yeah, which tells me that uh, even with the, the, the maximal uh, sales cycle of that, that 90 days, that there was a clear, yeah, we clear were, need. Yeah, we were selling to smaller companies. And yeah, the, the minute we launched it, like we knew that, listen, just take it all away from me. Help me take care of all these things. Let me run my business. The, I, mean, how, I mean, so the sales process was fairly smooth. You, they, yeah. you explained what you did and they got it. Yeah. Um, yes. And by year one, we were doing 1.3 million in uh, annual revenue run rate. Yeah. Um, by year two, we went from one to 20 million in annual revenue run rate. And year three, we went from 20 to 60. Got it. So in that year one, the, the, the demo day year uh, for Y Combinator, you said you made a first a couple of hires by the time you get to demo day. Yeah, um, I can talk to, uh, we had um, two engineers in the, in the very beginning. We ended the year with four engineers. Okay. Um, we had probably, we built eight products. Um, so the health insurance piece was one. Um, there was also this piece about commuter benefits, flexible spending accounts, health savings accounts. Yeah. So we added that set of products because they go very nicely with health insurance. Okay. And then we had added onboarding and uh, payroll sync. So if you just make changes in benefits, we'd automatically keep it updated in your payroll systems as well. Okay. Right. It doesn't make sense to like enter the same data in 14 different systems. So we connect them all and make them like feel like one. Um, and then I think we launched uh, time off and vacation um, tracking. Um, we also did a bunch of stuff around contractors onboarding and paying them. Uh -huh. um, so it was it was a lot of stuff that like we did in the first year. So roughly eight products in that first yeah. year, and the 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 engineering capacity that's delivering these eight products is you uh, and how many engineers? Me and uh, the second. Uh, so me and Glenn were pretty much there from the beginning. Then our first, our, our third engineer, if you count me and Glenn, um, joined us in August of that year. Okay. Um, the fourth engineer joined us, fourth and fifth joined in December. So it was really three of us that, that were cranked out that first year. Products, yeah. And at what point in in this uh, in the timeline do you uh, get the, the founder running from uh, uh, Andrews and Horowitz? Um, so Series A we did in December um, 2013. Okay. So then that allowed you to presumably scale the engineering team the following year. Yeah. So the following year... Um, we went from, my, my plan was to hire one engineer a month and we'll get to 12 engineers and 12 plus five, that's like 17. This is a great plan, Parker, this is what I'm going to do. Um, it all went out the window once like we started selling really, really fast. Okay. Um, so we went from five to maybe 25 by the end engineers of the by the end of the following year. Um, I think we went from 25 to 
30 or so by March of the following year, uh-huh. the year following that, 2015. Yeah. yeah. From March 2015 to October 2015, we went from 30 to 215 engineers. Okay, so that was that was explosive. Yeah. So let's let's break this down into those piece parts. So let, let's start with the the five to twenty five ish. Yeah, so I, I call this like the room without a view <laughs> part, which is four of us sitting in a single room. Everybody's next to each other. But even our first and second, our, our third and fourth hires were people that I'd worked with and mentored from D Shaw, and and we hired a bunch of really good people from India. So. We had them working as international contractors, so we sort of like had to develop that working with remote DNA very early on. So I think that was incredibly helpful in, in what came later. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second thing we we so, went from. So let me just pause for a second. Yeah. Some people heard that. So within uh, your first four or f- within the team being four or five people, you started to incorporate kind of a remote developer. Yeah, and because we were hiring from within network. Yeah. And I think till engineer 12 or 13, we hired from within network. Right. Um, and then we st- the second year is where we hired our first technical recruiter. Okay. Um, so you hired, you, that was like a contractor recruiter or? No, we hired a full-time recruiter because we knew that the revenue was growing, so we needed to like staff up the team. Got it. Um, so that's when we started hiring our first external. And do you even hires. remember how you found that technical recruiter? We interviewed a bunch of people and referrals through, I mean, we, we had an incredibly helpful investor network. Um, Got it. So that, that, that helped, through that helped. And then the YC network is amazing in terms of like referrals and hiring people. Yeah. So that's the work. So you, so, you know, up to about 12, it was mostly kind of your internal network and people that you had worked with at DE Shaw and other places. And then that 12 onwards, it's this technical recruiter that starts to. Yeah. And then it was mixed, right? Like 13 was probably our first person that none of us knew. Okay. Right. Um, and then it was a mix. Like we were able to hire more people from the network and also like people who were extended networks, like because of referrals. Sure. Um, so, so, so how did the interview evaluation process change right at that 12, 13 cusp moment? Yeah. So I think even from 12 to 25, 30, um, it was still a much more Let's try and like figure out fit. Let's see like if they can do products. Let's try and see like if they have a product sensibility. Um, kind of an interview to see like if, if they could actually own. Like ownership was huge for us. Like in the very beginning, we had one people, one person just develop entire systems. They owned it. Then like we packed them, and then like we had a team around it. Right. So ownership is big. So if you just want to build something, does somebody think critically about it? Can they ask questions? If they don't believe in something, will they not, will they kind of debate about it? Right. They may be wrong, but at least like it's good to, because I think debates make products better. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it debates and not arguments for a reason, <laughs> right? Um, so that was the kind of thing. And then when we had to hyperscale, um, there's no way you're going to run this process. Um, so we said, okay, what, is the kind of person can we get, right? Really, really fast. And how would we kind of use them? So we said, okay, let's optimize for raw intellectual horsepower and problem solving capability. Okay. Okay, if you wanna optimize for that, then what best than like run our own like global programming competitions. So we had a bunch of like ACM, ICPC programmers and a bunch of people in the company already. So they kind of like came up with the questions and like we uh, partnered with HackerRank and ran these global programs called Zen Hacks. 
Okay. Um, we ran this like consecutively for a couple of years. We invited the top 30 people to San Francisco, did a bunch of tech talks, and then interviewed them and probably gave offers to half of them and hired them. So that was like a fast way for us to hire. Um, and it was also, we wanted the best talent no matter where they were in the world, okay. rather than just competing with the talent here. Mm -hmm. um, that's also when we started thinking about, okay, we need to have, we can't just have San Francisco as our only base like for, for engineering. Mm -hmm. We need to think about like how we can have like diverse locations, diverse people. So we set up an office in Vancouver. Um, our engineer number three went to Vancouver is still running that office. Okay. Then we opened an office in Bangalore because some of us still had networks where there were really strong people who didn't want to like leave India. Yeah. So we hired them uh, in our Bangalore office so that we can add like more muscle. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how we did that. So um, having gone through that process and used uh, the programming test and things like HackerRank, um, would you recommend using that methodology for evaluating? It really depends on like what one wants and um, what the company does and what stays there. In. I mean, most interviewing is a coin toss. Um, but more than that, I think, I think it's really, really important like what the post-interview onboarding process looks like. Mm -hmm. right. so, so let's spend a little bit of time talking about exactly that. Yeah, um, I, I would go as far as to say, listen, like if you've hired somebody, you've done your tests, they probably can do the job. And if they still can't do the job, then I don't think there's anything wrong with them. It's something wrong with the process of the company or the process you run in your company, right? Um, and I would also go so far as to say like most engineering jobs or software engineering jobs these days, don't require like rocket science. Like people are not like people are writing crud of various forms, right? Um, so I don't think you need a PhD in neuroscience to like write your marketing pages. So I think that's also people have to be realistic about the engineer ambition fit. Uh huh. Um, I think that that's a very very important thing. So I would say if you've run your process fairly okay, you found a person who should be able to do the job. Now it is up to you to make them successful. Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a system that produces square widgets and suddenly say, why is the widgets not around? It doesn't work. Right. So the process you have and the system you have is really important. Mm -hmm. We screwed the pooch on this like many, many times. Right. Like we hyperscaled without having tooling and infrastructure. The one thing that we did right though was we had a good three week onboarding bootcamp for anybody like that we hired. And once we started hiring in bulk, we started having a bootcamp that starts on the first of every month and 15th of every month. And we um, made sure that people join on those dates. So the three week so bootcamp. Let's yeah, pause for a second. Yeah. So, at what, so that's, I mean, I'm a big believer in that, but at what point, uh, just in terms of uh, company size and rough time frame, did you have the capacity to create the materials in uh, like a, a Zenefits University that was the bootcamp? Yeah, so it was mostly a volunteer-run program. Um, so we had about 30 engineers at that point. 30? 30. Okay. Um, 25 to 30. So I said, listen, like, I mean, there's no way people are going to come in and get on board really fully. I mean, like, the, like, again, like, this is where I think being in Silicon Valley is a great place to run a startup because there have been numerous number of people who have been helpful in terms of, like, helping me think through these things. Uh, one of the person I spoke to was was at Facebook who set up the bootcamp there. Okay, yeah. So we kind of like took that and shrunk it. Um, so part of the bootcamp was you do a bunch of tickets in different parts of the organization. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you get a good idea of like the code base, like you get a safari around the code base, mm-hmm. and you get to work with different people right. because they're doing your code reviews. You get to get a sense of like what interests you, right? And then we kind of ask them like, hey, like what do you want to do among all these things you've done? Yeah. And then we have like the list of things that we need, and then we try and match that to the best possible so that if people are doing what they like, they're going to be way more productive, right? Yeah. And then the other thing that happens during the bootcamp is I think like every day we have two or three sessions where a bunch of engineers will talk about, okay, like how do you do like Python at Xenophix? Like how do you do like GitHub stuff, like basics? And there'll be an architecture stuff. And then there'll be some folks start talking about like how does like JavaScript and like at that point we use Ember. Right. So like a quick boot crash course on like how Ember works, right? Yeah. So that would be like four or five sessions which we recorded and then like kind of reuse them later. Uh, when when we did not have like 10 people joining at once <laughs> uh, because that's way more efficient, right? When you have like two people, one person joining, it's much better to record these things and just like use it so that people can kind of see it at their own leisure. Sure, sure. But we had a buddy system. So we had one is to two or three where one buddy would have two or three new hires assigned and if you're doing low volume, one is to one is good. Yeah. And uh, they would kind of be the person who assigns them to catch. Um they would be a neutral person like who kind of like helps them walk through like the baby steps in terms of like if they get stuck, um, what to do about it. And um, we had like some fantastic buddies like who kind of like developed the like grew in ranks to become like engineering managers here because that's like one of a good way to like kind of mentor people and learn whether to see whether you like it or not. To have a passion for that. Yeah. Of being a catalyst. So um, have, have you guys set internal goals for um, how soon after a new hire starts do you expect them to be productive on the code? I think, I think we have a we have a rule of thumb because we were hiring so fast. Yeah, um, we had to have a process where we could let go of people who are not working out pretty fast. Again, like usually the interview process is a client flip, even when you do it hyper diligently. Mm-hmm. Like we were churning interviews left, right, and center. So so we had a 30, 60, 90 day program where. 30 days, like we look and see if they've done anything at all. If they've not made a single comment, not done anything through the bootcamp, like that's a bad sign. Like, and we probably say like, this is not the right fit. Right. 60 days, like they've just started with the team. So we'll see how well they're integrating. They've done some menial bug bug fixes, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And in 90 days, we expect them to have getting started on their product of their own and like started doing something like a little more meaningful, having done some design docs. Right. Uh, interacted with a bunch of people. So if that's not happening, then um, like it's not a fit. Having, having gone through that experience of uh, developing that bootcamp and, and refining it, uh, it sounds like you started roughly around the time you had about 30 people. If you were to go back, do you think you would start earlier? When you were uh, Well, hindsight is 20, 20. Sure. Um, we, we just had so much to do. Um, remember, for most of the year, when we grew from two to 20 million in revenue, we had about 10 engineers, right? Like we hired more towards the back of the year. And we, the startup was 14 months old, 15 months old, 18 months old, right? Like we didn't just have time to build all these systems. Right. So like we were hand kind of like implementing these companies, doing a lot of stuff like supporting the operation side of the business. Yeah. Um, so the just, so I, I, do I wish I would have done that? Sure. But like would Xenophys be well? It would have been like if I had done that? Probably not. So think of it more in terms of um, if you're coaching uh, a team that has 
those kinds of growth aspirations. Um, yeah, they have those kind of growth aspirations. They're not going to have time to run boot camps. Like at least in that very early stage. So it's it's unrealistic. Yeah, I think it's unrealistic. Yeah, that, that I can. I, yeah. can I, I, I would probably do a again. Like this is a really hard thing to do because people who are looking for jobs are not like just sitting around like for a week where you could do a trial. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> like I mean, that would be the best way to hire somebody. Like if they can, you pay them mm-hmm. their hourly rate. They come in like and work with you for a week, and if they like it and you like it, like it works. Like I mean, that's probably a lot more nuanced interview process than any questions anybody could ask. I think the best interview process we had, like when we hired a marketing engineer, mm-hmm. was like we gave them the exact work that they'll be doing and gave them three hours. Listen, if you can do this in three hours, like at least get something done in three hours, like you have the job. And he was able to do it and he had the job. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, that's that's the closest I found to, but the issue is that yeah. the, the supply side of the equation is not so thrilled uh, to do that because they have options yeah. and it's competitive. Yeah, the thing that we found like worked really well, even when sometimes when our interview process is not extremely, doesn't give a clear answer, mm-hmm. but maybe it's a referral or a strong referral. We've done these things called take homes like later, and that's probably takes like four, two to four hours to complete. Right. Um, so that can potentially be done on a weekend, and we've had some great candidates who killed it on the take home but did not like do the interview itself that well. Interesting. Um, and so you get. I guess what you're saying is you get, you know, it's all a function of learning from the false positives and the false negatives. Yeah, I wish, I wish like we learned well from the false negatives. Like what it, we, aspirationally, we wanted to like follow through everybody that we didn't hire through their career and like see how well they did. Right. Um, but it's just like, it happens like once every year maybe. So, I'm, you know, uh, that two to 10 million uh, journey from uh, say three to 10 to 12 engineers the engineering organization is, I'm guessing, fairly flat at that point? Yeah, I think until we had uh, 110 engineers, everybody was a software engineer and everybody reported to me. It just got weird because people would join the company and they wouldn't know like who the fuck was what. Like, I mean, there's no titles, everybody's a software engineer, who do I go and talk to? Right, right. right. So it caused real problems. Um, so we said in true like startup style, okay, like we need to solve this problem, let's get two people to like go figure this out. So two people like sat there for two weeks and came up with a list of titles and responsibilities and all that stuff. And I'm like, wait, like, why are we doing this? Like, this is a solved problem. Titles are a solved problem in the world. We shouldn't be reinventing the wheel on these things. Uh-huh. So it's, it's, I mean, we start out saying like, listen, like, there are a lot of solved problems in the world. We are not this unique snowflake, sunflower or whatever you want to call it. Like, if, if that is a solved problem, we should just adopt it. Right. Um, but in the thick of things, we ourselves tend to forget these things. So Tigers was one of them. So like we spent two weeks, like two people's time, like trying to figure this stuff out. And then we said like, fuck it, like let's just use the standard titles out there. Like we got this like really cool, like full job description and title levels and bands and all that stuff, like from how, what people do. And then we just use that. And so out of that was born the org structure. Yes. was less flat. Yes. Uh, so do you, uh, so in that 110-ish uh, engineer level, uh, do you remember how many... So again, like, although everybody was software engineer, there was like an organizational, um, mostly by what they worked on, uh-huh. what products they owned. Right. So it was loosely like teams, um, it was loosely like pods. Okay. So we had a bunch of like payroll stuff that we did. So it was like payroll and time and attendance was a pod. All our HR and core services was a pod. And all of our benefits teams were a pod. 
So like we had these like concept of like large pods. Yeah. And we had notional leaders for each of those. Um, but it, it just wasn't like titled that way. Yeah. And then and then it became more official. So um, talk a bit about your own as a as the you know co-founder and engineering leader, you um, kind of the evolution of how you were spending your time from um, you know spending 110% of it coding uh, to starting to spend less time coding and more time on the people process management leadership communication. Yeah, I probably screwed that up. Um, I, I should have probably switched my time spent writing code a lot earlier than I did. Okay. Um, it felt like I was spending... It felt like, right? Like that, that's, that's the key word. It felt like I was spending 80% of my time coding, 110% of my time interviewing, <laughs> Uh, and I had like no time for anything else. Um, so we did, uh, and, and we, a lot of the process we ran were like ad hoc, um, which is where I think that was a really bad thing. Um, I wish that we had done that like slightly differently. Yeah. Uh, everything was well-intentioned, uh, right? Like, I mean, we had like wikis documenting like all these processes, how they work yeah. to make it as transparent as possible. Uh-huh. But like people don't read. Um, there's a reason why people like to write code and read code. Uh, like people are just like somehow worse like reading stuff. So, and, and I've come to like think, maybe it's extreme, that no knowledge is institutional unless it's codified or automated in some way in tooling or infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so like we kind of like took that to heart as we kind of scale further. Again, we built a lot of tooling around right after the code is committed for, for a pull request, like it just takes over. There's a whole bunch of things. Um, yeah, so coming back to your question, like I, I wish I'd like spent less time writing code. So, so, um, so since we're because like eventually my code, I'm, I'm so happy that most of my code is like died a painful death. <laughs> uh, it deserved to. Uh, but so, what was the actual and as as lacks the coach? What would you have recommended to yourself? So when did you make that switch? Yeah, I, I think I I would have probably. I would have switched to doing full-time code review. Than, at what, than at what code. stage? Um, 10, 15 engineers. Oh, really? Yeah. And when did you actually make that switch? I don't know. 160, 170. Got it. Um, so I still have a long streak, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can definitely believe it. So uh, now, okay, so we've talked about... By the way, over time, like I've... I've I've stopped thinking about it as a matter of pride. I think it's a folly <laughs> that I have the longest streak. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, it's it's hard to know these things without experiencing them. Um, so uh, we've talked about the the engineering organization growing and uh, kind of the, the org changes throughout it. Um, now let's look at the lens for that same engineering organization growing for something like uh, testing. Um, and the processes you put in and at what stages you put in what processes. Yeah, so I mean like, okay, these are my biases. Yeah, sure. Right? Um, I think the kind of people we hired were also my biases. Like we wa- like we wanted all leaders to be uh, player coaches. So we wanted them to be able to actually do the thing that their team will do. Mm-hmm. Um, so for most leaders that we hired, we said, listen, like you're just going to be on the team. And if you are good enough, as you say you are, you'll become the automatic leader in like four to six months. Mm-hmm. So we actually intentionally give people lower titles like to be on the team with the understanding that like if they are 
if they have the skill sets that they claim to have, right. they'll become the national leader for that team. And like that's when like we make them the manager of that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, like they walk in the trenches with the team, they understand everything. And those were my biases. And and for most parts, I think they still work. Um, because I think there's a stronger bond that's formed with the manager and the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that was one of the things. The other big biases, uh, we have is we're big on ownership, which means you don't write code and toss it over the wall to somebody to test. Like you write your own test. Like you are the last line of defense between anything bad happening on production, right? So to a large extent, like we still have a huge like test suite, automated test and integration tests, and we build tooling for all that stuff so that engineers can build like end-to-end integration tests like that runs in RCI environment. Okay. Um, and we use Rainforest QA in the early days to run smoke tests. Now we use what this tool will functionalize and a bunch of stuff. That said, we do have three to four specialized quality engineers that are embedded with the team that help them test new products. Okay. Um, we have a five person contractor team in Bangalore. Mm-hmm. Um, that runs the end-to-end revision every day, um, and uh, that's that's pretty much it. Those are the things. So, um, you know, engineering team growing from a handful to five to ten to twenty. At what point do you start, or how do you handle the the DevOps uh, function? Yeah, so we we were a monolith for a long time for the first three years. Like we we had a single deploy. Yeah. So we deploy three times a day in the beginning, and then we kind of cut it down to once a day. We do once a day today. Yeah. Uh, but today we have a plethora of services as well as the monolith. Um, so the monolith is just like we had like one deploy pipeline we had to build. Uh, for the first 18 months of Xenophage, uh, fun fact, um, our app server, DB server, and our web server was the same machine. Oh. And we had like one standby uh, hot swap. And we were doing $10 million of revenue. <laughs> Would you recommend that to others? Well, I mean, there was a reason for that, right? I mean, we had six engineers. Um, we had some really, really, really good data that we wanted to protect in mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to protect one server than protect a fleet of service. Um, and also, no network latency. Yes. Um, we developed some bad habits because of that, but... I mean, it was it was it was done for a reason. Like it was not like oh, let's just do this and you know it. Yeah, um, and so, at what was the motivation? What drove you to move as an organization away from monolith to uh, uh, services or microservices? Or yeah, I think the well, I still think monolith is a great architecture uh, type, and if you build your team a lot more slowly. If you have people who know what they're doing for the most parts, I think Monolith still has a huge number of advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about distributed monoliths, like you can deploy it multiple times, like turn on different services, like make it look like a service-oriented architecture. You yeah. can do a lot of like tricks and magicery and all that stuff because again, I think code is fundamentally written for humans to collaborate on, make changes and write. And it's just incidental that we're run on machines and do interesting stuff, right? Because if humans can't like change it, like then it's just stuck in that like static form and it's not very useful. So that's why like 
the monolith automatically enforces a certain number of things like a single repo and a bunch of stuff like that makes it easier right not that you can't have that with the services but traditionally like the services maximalists like think about like individual repos individual everything mm-hmm. like i'm mm-hmm. doing on devops so it's like making changes in governance becomes a pain right like it's it's really really hard um so i'm big on governance like we were not like let a thousand sunflowers bloom you use whatever the language you want somebody writes closure and leaves the next day and you're stuck with this like it's not very useful um so we were big on governance so we kind of let the team do its course and learn and like so we are now going back to a mono repo with microservices uh-huh. um and we hired this um person like who had this who was building this infrastructure called duplo which made it really easy to run like microservices as a platform yeah so we used that stuff um yeah so again now we are looking at how can we make our monolith because we use django each is an app so we had this like light transformation where we wrote this tool called fortress so if you drop fortress on an app it makes it behave like it's a microservice so you can't access everything because it's python we can like do interpret interpret type stuff so it makes it behave like that so that's the first step and mm-hmm. then because moving from monolith to microservices is a whole world of pain <laughs> and uh, i'm sure like a lot of people go through it so and also we spoke to a whole bunch of people uh, who were extremely helpful like we spoke to the people who did it at linkedin we spoke to people at uber we spoke to people at pinterest and they were all extremely helpful and so um how long did that process take i mean it's still an ongoing process um and we are we are very careful about like what gets to be a microservice how is that done um and so on and so forth Uh, but I think okay, so so I think the reason also like we decided okay that's a good thing because I think the microservices architecture makes it harder to do the wrong thing, mm-hmm. right? Like our monolith, if you drew a code dependency graph, like it looked like a chicken feed drawing. It was like two people took two hands and like went went at it on a spiral. Um, so <laughs> so it's very easy to do the wrong thing in a monolith. So like that's where microservices makes it easier. I can I can definitely um, uh, attest that that journey from monolith to microservices is one that comes up a lot, um, and when to do it and how best to do it. Um, so I think one of the you know unique things about uh, you know Zenefits and your time there is that you you had this mega growth period and then you had uh, some turbulence and then you come out of the turbulence and you continue to kind of go up and to the right. Uh, as a solid success. So, uh statistically very few people come out of that turbulence. But you guys did. And what how were you able to, you know, maintain the culture and the the quality through that period? Yeah, so I mean it was definitely a roller coaster. Um but we learned a lot from that. Um the big thing is I think fundamentally one thing that kind of both part and me like we talk about um is isn't you're not as good as they say you are. you're not as bad as they say you are what really matters is like what the customers say and whether they're still customers mm-hmm. right throughout this period like most of our customers like us still are customers right like and we wanted new customers so so that's kind of like that kind of like help people see through a lot of these like other stuff and i also i think the delta between what we think internally about what needs to be turned around this is like what externally was was kind of mentioned i think was huge mm-hmm. so the arbitrage was in our favor um yeah and 
And I think like it was really important for us to like take some of the lessons learned and turn it into products. So we have we, we did two products. One was called Compliance Calendar, mm-hmm. which kind of lays out all the federal compliance rules and regulations and dates for filings and all that stuff as a calendar, so that our customers like will just know, oh, your deadline for filing ACA is coming up like in two weeks, and this is these are the instructions. Right now, like we could also say if you wanted to do it, if you want us to do it for you, like click here and like sign up for that product. Yeah, but we we want to make sure that nobody ever misses these kind of things, right? So all the federal stuff exists in our compliance calendar product. The other thing we did was this app, Salesforce app called Licensing Plus, which would ensure that no broker or any person who needs a license to do something cannot do that without having a license. So it enforces certain rules and rule sets. And we have more than 100 companies using that, including insurance companies. Interesting. So there was like this great opportunity for uh, um, sort of dog fooding your own experience and creating something that sounds like uh, a large number of customers now use that. Yeah. Um, I think Jay calls it drinking our own champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So uh, for those people that are um, currently individual contributor uh, engineers and have aspirations to become uh, a manager, uh, you know, how would you help them evaluate whether it's a right fit for them? Don't. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, jo- joking aside, I think, um, I think you should really, really find out if that's what you want to do. Um, because I, I really think that's this entire, like, TEDx engineer, right? Um, I think different people are TEDx in different ways. Right? There is a TEDx engineer, there's a TEDx product manager, there's a TEDx data science, there's a TEDx something else, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's that's why I talk about the engineer ambition fit. Like I think that's really really important. So just because like people become managers and directors and VPs and and just because like you see people doing that, that doesn't mean it's a right fit for everybody, right? So I think one needs to introspect deeply mm-hmm. um, to figure out if that's what you want to do because more people, more problems. Um, so one thing, so, and and some people really enjoy doing that, right? Like people can tenex themselves by leading a team of ten engineers. Or people can tell themselves by like writing code worth for 10 engineers, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to scale one. Um, the second thing is, um, I wish we had done um, new manager boot camps like earlier than we did, manager trainings earlier than we did. Mm-hmm. Because listen, like just because you're a great engineer doesn't guarantee you're going to be a great manager, right? The day you become manager, you're starting a new job, day zero, right? You have zero skills in this thing. And I think it's important to tell them, like, you are going to screw up. There are going to be days, like, where you wish you'd never become a manager, right? Right. And and it's okay. Like, it's about, like, expectations, right? And most of these things is about expectation setting. Um, it's, uh, I think, I, I heard this talk by somebody who, who once mentioned, like, there's a baby manager, and then they become a teenage manager, and they become an adult manager. Right. So, it's like, when somebody's a baby manager, I think it's important to tell them, like, listen, like, this is a completely different job from, like, what you've been doing so far. And just because you're good at that doesn't mean you're going to be good at this, mm-hmm. right? So I think, like, having a framework for them, like, setting expectations and kind of, like, what the expectations are from them as well, I think is important from an organization perspective, right? Like, I mean, that, hopefully, like, if they listen to this, like, they're going to know, okay, fine, I'm going to screw up and it's okay. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's important to know. Are there, as you've gone through your journey in, um, you know, improving your leadership chops, are there books or things that you've you've read that you've uh, valued quite a lot? I think there's a bunch of things. Um, I I, um, really like the Michael Lopp book 
for I, I forget the name. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the I show. Know, I'll yeah. put it in the show notes. Yeah, and then um, I think the mythical man month, the the classic in terms of like project management and uh, that, that that stuff, and then it's just. I mean, I think like everybody kind of develops a feel for it as they as they kind of like learn and grow. Yeah. Um, I also think certain things are are, are super important um, that are fairly generic um, kind of things to do. I think one is if you kind of have some values and rules and all that stuff. I think it is important to, on day one to establish that in the team mm-hmm. so that they know what to expect. Right. Like this is how I see the world. I'm open to changing it, but but if you can if you can have an argument about it and like you prove it otherwise, like I'm happy to change that. But this is how like I see the world based on like all my experiences, and here's what I expect from you guys. Like here's my non-negotiables, right? Mm-hmm. I think those are those are like important to like establish. And the second thing that I found to be useful is like having a predictable, transparent process, right? It's like okay, how do people get recognized in this team? What do they get recognized for? Yeah. Right. Like, who gets promoted, and like, why do they get promoted for? Like, one of the like unintended consequences are everywhere, right? Like, one of the f- fun stories that, like, we had demo days, right? Like, everybody has demo days. Like, it's awesome. Like, people who are working on products come and showcase it. But what it created was people. It created an incentive for people to work on these like shiny products rather than like infrastructure stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, some people gravitate towards that, but they kind of felt that like, oh, if I have to be working on a product, if my work is to be showcased. So like we changed that and said like listen like it's not a demo day but it's like show and tells like you can do you can show and tell anything that's what it was meant to be it turned into this right mm-hmm. so unintended consequences are everywhere so it, it's useful to identify that they are going to happen uh, it's useful to like kind of identify that early on and like make adjustments that makes sense so in my research I found that you played basketball uh, and represented your school is that is that right. Yeah, I played basketball in college in India. So, do you uh, are you still a fan of the sport? Do you watch the NBA? Yes, I do. Okay, so um, here I used to wake up at five a.m. India time in nineteen ninety five to watch the Jordan Bulls. Yeah, that was uh, the the second of the three peat years. Yeah, of the second three peat, I think. Yeah, the second. The, the second. Three-peat. So, uh, and do you remember the center on that Bulls team? Oh man, it's from Australia. Uh, Australian guy called Luke Longley. Luke Longley, yes. <laughs> Who uh, very famously uh, was asked, how would you define Michael Jordan in one word? And he said, predator. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lax, uh, this has been a fantastic experience. I think my uh, listeners really appreciate hearing your stories. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, like, happy to share this and thank you so much for having me. Terrific.